Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. Now, former President Trump had until today to appear before special counsel Jack Smith's grand jury to tell his side of the story. As far as we know, that has not happened. Mr. Trump did not take Jack Smith up on that offer. But someone else did speak with the special counsel's grand jury today. He is not a household name. The House January 6th committee never even interviewed him. But clearly, this individual was in a position to know some things. His name is William Russell. The only photos we have of Mr. William Russell are ones where he's in the background of Trump events. And that makes sense because Mr. Russell was what is known in the political world as an advance man. His job was to coordinate President Trump's movements, his literal movements from one location to another and to go ahead of the president to make sure everything was set up. He went in advance of Trump, thus an advance man. And that makes William Russell a potentially huge witness when it comes to January 6th. Here was Russell with President Trump and Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, on January 6th in the tent at the Ellipse before Trump's big speech that day. You might remember from the House January 6th investigation that there was drama in that tent before Trump went on stage. Trump was angry that the crowd was too small. He was mad that security was turning people away if they had weapons. He wanted people inside the ellipse so that they could cheer him on. But Trump's anger wasn't directed at his supporters for showing up armed. His anger was focused on the presence of magnetometers, the metal detectors. And the group he was directing this anger at included his advance team. The advance team had relayed to him that the mags were free-flowing. Everybody who wanted to come in had already come in. But he still was angry about the extra space and wanted more people to come in. I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Let the people in. Take the effing mags away. So that incident could certainly be something special counsel Smith would like to learn more about today from William Russell. Trump's knowledge of how armed the crowd was on January 6th and Trump's desire to let in that armed crowd. But then there is what happened after Trump's speech at the Ellipse on January 6th. Trump wanted to make what is known as an off the record movement or OTR to the Capitol itself. A president has on-the-record movements, meaning travel from one destination to another, that is put on the president's official schedule for the press each day. But a president can also make off-the-record movements or travel from one destination to another without alerting the press. Both those types of movements, on-the-record and off-the-record, are something that an advance man might be a part of. And this particular off-the-record movement, Trump physically going to the Capitol after his speech, this movement had been debated at the White House for days. White House lawyer Pat Cipollone warned Cassidy Hutchinson repeatedly, not just that he thought it was a bad idea, but it could get everyone involved in it in deep legal trouble. 
Mr. Cipollone said something to the effect of, please make sure we don't go up to the Capitol, Cassidy. Keep in touch with me. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement happen. And do you remember which crimes Mr. Cipollone was concerned with? In the days leading up to the six, we had conversations about potentially obstructing justice or defrauding the electoral count. Obstructing justice or defrauding the electoral count. Well, yesterday, NBC News confirmed the three statutes Mr. Trump has been warned about in the target letter he received from Jack Smith. And one of them is conspiracy to defraud the United States, which certainly sounds like it's in the ballpark of defrauding the electoral count. And it is important to remember that even though Trump ultimately did not get to the Capitol that day, he tried to aggressively and repeatedly do just that. You might remember Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony to that end. Ms. Hutchinson was told that when Trump's presidential limo refused to take him to the Capitol, Trump was so furious that he tried to grab the steering wheel and then physically fought with his lead Secret Service agent who tried to restrain him. Once he was forced back to the White House, Trump kept his overcoat on, still arguing to be taken to the Capitol. His motorcade waited outside for more than 45 minutes, just in case Trump won that argument. If I were Jack Smith, I am certainly not. But if I were, I would definitely want to hear from Trump's advance man about how everything went down on January 6th itself. But we also know that the special counsel has previously been interested in William Russell for other reasons. Russell has already testified twice before special counsel grand juries, once reportedly for Smith's investigation into Trump's use of election fraud claims to fundraise after the 2020 election, and then another time as part of the Mar-a-Lago documents investigation. William Russell really seems to know a lot about almost everything. So what was he doing with the grand jury today and what can that tell us about where this whole investigation stands. Joining us now are Danya Perry, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, and Andrew Weissman, you may have heard of him, the former lead prosecutor for special counsel Robert Mueller and co-host of the Must Listen To MSNBC podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump. Andrew, Danya, it's great to see you both in the flesh as this, well, I guess... The, the prognostication continues about what's happening here. Andrew, let me start with you in terms of the presence of Will Russell testifying today. W- what does this tell you about where we are in the January 6th investigation? Um, well, first, there's there's nothing unusual about somebody being called back into the grand jury. That can happen for a whole variety of reasons. It could happen because Jack Smith wants to actually see how he testifies and sort of get a sense of his credibility. It could be also they just learn something new that they want to ask him about. It also could be that they have some questions about things he might have said earlier that they are concerned about whether it's totally accurate, that that might be a bit of a euphemism, um, and whether he now has his memory refreshed. It could be any of those things. Um, It does suggest it's sort of a later stage. I mean, obviously, if you get a target letter, that's the key thing that tells you it's at at this point where I think very much at the end stage. Um, But to your point, he is the sort of natural person to make sure you've sort of gone through everything he knows because he is there with the former president day in and day out. So in some ways, it's even better than Mark Meadows. Plus, he's sort of a more junior person. Mm -hmm. So you might, might I stress, 
get a more candid version of what happened. Well, right. I mean, the, it's it's like with prosecuting a mob case. You start with the lower level people who don't have as much skin invested in the game that were in the room where it happened. Does it surprise you, Danya, that this is the first time we've really talked about William Russell? This is someone who was not on, apparently on the radar of the January 6th committee. But then you see the photos of him on January 6th, and he is in the place you need to be to find out Trump's state of mind in a critical moment in American history. Yeah, to Andrew's point, it, it often is the kind of fly in the wall who makes the best witness for the prosecution. They know so much, they hear everything, but sometimes the higher ups don't really notice their presence and are very candid um, while they're there. And they also don't usually have the, the, the same kind of culpability mm-hmm. or exposure. And so they don't have to make deals. So they're not a, a complicated witness in that sense. Um, so just like Cassidy Hutchinson, in some way, was a wonderful witness for the January 6th committee. And she put so much into the record that we hadn't known. This is kind of the analog um, in some way. And so it's not surprising that he'd be called time and time again. Perhaps if we don't know, and I'm kind of answering a little bit or adding on to the, the question you put to Andrew, but it doesn't necessarily mean that much. It can be a many reasons, as you said. It can be tricks of the calendar. It doesn't mean that they are or not indicting next week. They can continue to put people in the grand jury, as we've seen with the Mar-a-Lago investigation. Well, also, I mean, to everybody's point, this is someone who has been testifying about multiple investigations here, Andrew. And I wonder, there was a, there's an anecdote, there's a story about what happened in court today. A judge in an unrelated case effectively forced William Russell's lawyer to give up a little bit of information about why William Russell was meeting with the grand jury today. Do you can you offer a little insight into that? Sure. Um, so essentially, Trevor McFadden was the judge and the defense counsel for Mr. Russell was supposed to be present before Trevor McFadden for a sentencing of a different defendant who he also represented. And by the way, the same defense lawyer also represents Mr. Nauda. So that's three. Yes. Um, and he was late. And that um, apparently did, you know, displeased the judge. You shouldn't be late to a court appearance. And in the course of that, the defense counsel said, I had to go back and it took longer because there was a claim of executive privilege. So William um, Russell was testifying to this grand jury and somehow it involves executive privilege. Exactly. And then that all sort of got worked out behind the scenes because the prosecutors came and spoke with the judge. And we don't know that part because appropriately that was behind the scenes. I sort of took two things away from that. One is that happened sort of later in the day. And that sort of meant Mr. Russell was there for quite some time. Oh, and I think that's a good sign for the government that they were really pressing on a whole variety of issues. Again, tea leaf reading, but it's not somebody who went in for an hour to mm-hmm. clean something up. So that suggests to me that there was a, a variety of topics that were being plumbed. The other issue is, as I mentioned, his counsel um, represents two other people. I'm not saying this with respect to this particular lawyer, but there is a problem in cases involving multiple multiple people in a conspiracy when you have something called house counsel, where the lawyer is um, making sure that they're kind of doing the bidding for the ultimate client. Which in this case is? 
Donald Trump, and also that tends to be also the person who's paying. Um, in this and he case. is. Exactly. So you have sort of those two things going on. And that would be something, if I were the prosecutor, I would be concerned about. Now, just to be clear, it is legal to represent multiple people. Each person waives the potential conflict. But it is perilous um, because you as a lawyer have an ethical obligation to zealously represent each of your clients. And sometimes those clients' interests conflict. And then you have an ethical obligation to say, I can't do this. Um, Does that always happen? No, unfortunately, it doesn't always happen. So that's the concern is that you have somebody who's really not there representing that person's best interest. Just as an onlooker to all this, when you see the name Stanley Woodward, which is the name of Mr. Russell's lawyer, it to me signals, oh, that means that the person he's representing ain't cooperating with the federal government. Listen to this list. Walt Nauda, the co-conspirator named in the Mar-a-Lago case. Tyler Budowich was the last witness called into the grand jury in Florida. Uh, Yusil Tavares, who is the Mar-a-Lago IT guy who was working alongside Walt Nauda, maybe on security camera questions. Dan Scavino, close Trump aide. Cash Patel and Peter Navarro. All of those people, Danya, are being represented by Stanley Woodward. Does this foreclose the possibility that any of them are going to ever cooperate with the federal government? And should we assume that none of those people are cooperating witnesses at this point? It probably is a thumb on the scale <laughs> against cooperation. As Andrew said, it, it, it can be consistent with ethical obligations. There's also no inherent problem with someone else paying legal bills. That happens all the time. Oftentimes, if a prosecutor raises this potential conflict, a judge will hold a hearing and determine for itself whether or not there is actually a conflict. And sometimes they will actually kick a lawyer off. So I haven't seen that happen in this case, but that's, you know, there's some potential for that. But it's certainly, you know, that is how people at the at the top keep the people at the bottom a little more in check. Aligned. Well, yeah, they're all paid by the Trump Save America Super PAC. I got to ask you in terms of what William Russell might be brought in for in specific, Andrew. You know, we talked about defrauding the electoral count. That was something that Pat Cipollone was worried about if Trump had gone to the Capitol on Jan 6th. You know, defrauding that sort of dovetails with one of the charges that was outlined in the target letter. Absolutely. Do you think that that's where we're going with this? I know I'm asking you to predict the yeah. sort of unpredictable, but is 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 it off base to say, oh, maybe they're really zeroing in on that moment on January 6th where Trump's trying to physically go to the Capitol and encourage his supporters to go with him? Well, I think there's no question that's at least one of the topics. Um, you know, there's this photograph as you showed of his being there. So if you are uh, the prosecutors, you want to know everything from everybody as to what um, was going on with Donald Trump on that day. Um, and so this is a logical person. Uh, and so I think that's included. But if it were me, I would also want to know, what do you know about pressuring Mike Pence? What do you know about pressuring DOJ? What do you know about pressuring the states? In other words, he may have information about all of those things. And even if it's just small pieces, you want to make sure you've plumbed that. He also could be a witness, as Cassidy Hutchinson is, as to knowledge before January 6th of potential violence. 
Um, and that seems it seems unusual if he did not know that, given just how much information we have about people being concerned about that. Yeah. You know, we have Hope Hicks, who told the January 6th committee and it presumably has now told Jack Smith about her conversations with the president on January 4th and 5th, where she pleaded with him to say something to the crowd that's coming on January 6th about you have to stay peaceful. And according to her, the president rejected that. Um, Donna, I, I, I do want to raise something that Barb McQuaid and I were talking about yesterday, which is the, the special counsel very much is still interviewing witnesses, both in this investigation and in Mar-a-Lago. And is there any risk in continuing to bring in witnesses and sort of stretching, stretching on the timetable in which, in, you know, indictments and superseding indictments could come, given the whole card hold card, cold, hard reality of a presidential campaign that is very much underway and the, the sort of complications in and around that. Yes, I would agree there's some risk to that. And I think that the special counsel's office is is keenly aware of that. And they are going to hold themselves, I think, to a very tight timetable here. So the grand jury doesn't have to be impaneled in order to supersede. They could still be gathering information they could also be looking at other targets that maybe are on a longer time frame than Mr. Trump. So there are plenty for them to do. Um, but so it doesn't necessarily put in jeopardy that the time frame, you know, of indicting this particular defendant before we really get into into election season. So Bernie Carrick and Rudy Giuliani, Giuliani don't breathe a sigh of relief to us yet. The work is not over. <clears throat> Andrew Weissman, Donya Perry, so great to have both of you here. Thanks for your time. I know I'm going to be seeing more of both of you soon. We have a lot more this evening, including the latest effort in Ron DeSantis's Florida to whitewash the teaching of slavery. Plus, MAGA Republicans let wild conspiracy theories take center stage on Capitol Hill today with some help from a Democrat. That is next. The Republican hearings that have unfolded over the last few days and throughout this entire Congress are a malignant clown show. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, Kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. Is that a good thing for the Republican Party if Donald Trump is the... Is the could he win an election? And, can he and win get, that election? Yeah, he can. You think he can? You, the, the question is, is he the strongest to win the election? I don't know that answer. 
That was Speaker Kevin McCarthy in an interview with CNBC last month, questioning in the gentlest possible terms whether or not Donald Trump is the strongest candidate for the Republican Party in 2024. Today, Politico reports that that comment so enraged the former president that Trump demanded McCarthy endorse him immediately. As Speaker of the House, McCarthy has gone out of his way to stay neutral in the presidential uh, Republican presidential primary. So instead, Kevin McCarthy made a deal. As penance for his heresy, the Speaker reportedly told Trump he would have the House vote to expunge Trump's two impeachments and that he would get it done before the August recess, which is slated to begin on July 28th, which is a, basically a week from today, tomorrow. Today, reporters asked McCarthy about that reported deal. Here's what he said. There's no deal, but I've been very clear from long before when I voted against um, impeachments that they put in for purely political purposes. I support expungement. There's no deal out there. Joining me now is Congressman Jonah Goose, Democrat of Colorado, former impeachment manager and chair of the Democratic Policy and Communications Committee. I have a lot to ask you, Congressman. But the first is, what exactly is the point of expunging an impeachment? I'm not quite sure, Alex. I think it's a great question for the extreme members of the House Republican Caucus. Uh, from my understanding, every constitutional scholar that has looked at this has said, there's no constitutional basis for the type of action that they apparently are going to try to pursue in the House. It's nonsensical. Of course, it can't erase the actions that were taken by the House following, of course, the president's conduct initially in 2019. And then again, uh, during, uh, you know, rather after the events of January 6th, the trial that followed in the Senate, which, of course, I and my other fellow managers participated in, yeah. the American public watched it. The Senate rendered a verdict. And I, it's, as I said, nonsensical for the Republicans to try to pursue this. But of course, to the extent this is true, it's consistent with the way that Speaker McCarthy has conducted himself for the last seven and a half months since he first ascended to the speakership, constantly capitulating mm -hmm. to this extreme right wing part of his caucus that has clearly taken hold and kind of permeated the entire House Republican conference. Well, and placating the guy at the top of that extreme wing, which is, is Donald Trump, right? This is all an exercise in placating a, an irascible sort of individual who doesn't like the fact that he was impeached. I got to ask, I mean, there's this sort of reason McCarthy is doing this, which is for Trump, but there's the reality of what this does to his caucus. Resurfacing impeachment does not seem like good politics. And to ask members to take this vote seems equally perilous. I mean, I think there are only, there are only two Republicans left in the House Republican conference who voted for impeachment the first time. They had a very tight rope to walk. And to do this to them again and to other moderate members seems almost suicidal for a man who holds the gavel by five votes. Yeah, look, I mean, it is, as I said, nonsensical from a political standpoint, legally and substantively, it is meritless. But at the end of the day, again, insofar as this is true, the reporting, clearly the speaker is focused on his own survival yeah. atop his caucus. And we have seen time and time again over the last eight months a variety of different demands that have been made by the extreme right wing members of his caucus in cohort with and in concert with former President Trump that the speaker continually capitulates to. We saw that with the Default on America Act, real consequences for American families. Uh, we now see that, of course, with respect to the supposed expungement, uh, as they're calling it, of the uh, 
two impeachments that uh, the Congress proceeded with. I do have to ask, though, generally in the context when we talk about impeachment, we'll set Ukraine aside for the moment. But January 6th, right, we're on the precipice of Trump potentially being federally charged uh, for his role in the in the events that day. And the House Republican leadership has been so cavalier about holding him accountable, has gone so far as to suggest all of the efforts of the Department of Justice are a political stunt. I wonder what it is like for you as someone who was an investigator, someone who worked on the the impeachment in Congress, but also a victim that day, what it is like to watch the Speaker of the House of Representatives diminish what you did from a constitutional standpoint and diminish your experience as an individual who is part of an insurrection on the Capitol. I mean, it's disheartening. It's frustrating. But at the same time, it's par for the course for the Republican leadership in the House that clearly chose long ago to choose party over country. Mm -hmm. Uh, We saw that in the days after January 6th. Not all Republicans, as you said, 10 Republicans in the House, seven Republican senators who ultimately voted to convict in the United States Senate, notwithstanding that we didn't meet the constitutional standard for conviction, or rather the constitutional uh, vote requirements for conviction at two thirds. At the end of the day, it was the most bipartisan vote for conviction in the history of presidential impeachments. And I'm reminded of what Mitch McConnell said on the Senate floor minutes after that trial had concluded. As you recall, he ultimately voted to acquit, but made clear that he believed former President Trump was morally and practically responsible for provoking the events of that day and that he would not be, no former presidents ultimately are immune to criminal or civil liability for the actions that they have taken and the course of conduct during the course of their presidency. So, you know, I'm not going to opine on you know, the investigation. Obviously, it's being done by the special counsel. Uh, it's premature you know, for me to speculate, but I trust that the Department of Justice will do their work in an impartial and in independent, objective way. I think it is deeply dangerous yeah. for Republicans to be attacking the FBI, the Department of Justice, the Office of Special Counsel, it undermines the rule of law, which is sacrosanct in the United States. Well, and this is a man who was scared for his own life that day, right? Like the the revisionism is staggering. And in the meantime, they're hauling Robert F. Kennedy Jr. up to the Hill to to spout anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about the COVID-19 vaccine. I mean, we're, we're talking about a cast of characters who Republicans have brought to the Hill as part of their weaponization of the federal government investigations. That is, I mean, laughable would be euphemistic. The leader Jeffries called them a malignant clown show. I mean, this is more than just ridiculous. It seems from the outside to be dangerous. And yet I, it doesn't seem like they're showing any signs of slowing down. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think these hearings are going nowhere fast. I do think that not all, but some of the Republicans certainly know why they are doing it. And it's a strategic reason, a judgment that they have made that it is better to distract or to try to distract and obfuscate the American public from the dangerous public policy agenda that they're pursuing in the United States Congress, which is deeply unpopular with voters. You think about the work that they are trying to do to unwind the economic progress that President Biden and congressional Democrats made over the course of the last few years to grow the middle class to lower costs. They don't want to talk about their plan to defund Social Security or to cut Medicare. So instead, they, you know, Uh, fill uh, the airwaves with incoherent hearings on outlandish conspiracy theories. And as the leader said, clown shows, political sideshows. I think the American public can tell the difference between congressional oversight, legitimate congressional oversight and political sideshows. And I suspect that they are going to come to the conclusion that this is really the latter. And you were generous enough not to mention the craven behavior of taking credit for infrastructure projects that they voted against 
that were passed largely by Democrats. I'll and, talk about that next time. I speak. Yeah, right. OK, well, I mean, yes, you can. Please do. I didn't mean to sound sarcastic. Congressman Joe Neguse, thanks for your time. Thanks for coming and visiting us on set. Coming up after a quick break, Florida public schools may soon teach children that slavery brought a, quote, personal benefit to slaves. That is next. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. His name may not be familiar to you, but this is John Brown. John Brown was enslaved in the mid-1800s and subjected to excruciating experiments by a Georgia doctor named Thomas Hamilton. Hamilton believed there were physiological differences between black and white people, and he used Brown's body to prove it. After he escaped slavery, Brown described what happened to him in an autobiography. Dr. Hamilton set to work to ascertain how deep my black skin went. This he did by applying blisters to my hands, legs, and feet, which bear the scars to this day. That happened because Dr. Hamilton, a slave owner, was trying to scientifically bolster the prevailing ideology that black people were mentally and physically inferior to white people and therefore benefited from enslavement. That thinking was so pervasive at the time, it spawned propaganda like this print from slavery apologists who pushed a narrative that enslaved blacks in the U.S. were better off than white factory workers in Britain. And it provided material for slaveholders like South Carolina Senator John Calhoun, who in an 1837 speech argued that slavery was a boon to black people. Never before has the black race of Central Africa, from the dawn of history to the present day, attained a condition so civilized and so improved, not only physically, but morally and intellectually. This kind of thinking gave rise to junk science like drapedomania, which translates to runaway madness. It was a clinical term of the 1850s based on the belief that slavery so vastly improved the lives of the enslaved, they would, be, they would have to be mentally ill to run away. The term drapedomania was not removed from medical textbooks until after 1914. Human experiments and racist propaganda and fake science were used to prove something that we all know now is patently false. Black people did not benefit from slavery, quite obviously. But this year in Florida, the echoes of those falsehoods can be heard once again. Yesterday, the Florida Board of Education approved new standards for black history instruction that require lessons for middle schoolers to include, quote, 
how slaves develop skills, which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. The old racist trope from the 1850s that slavery benefited the enslaved seems to have been resurrected in Florida, and middle schoolers in that state may be required to learn it. More on that unlearning of American history is coming up next with my guest, journalist and dean Jelani Cobb. As part of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' efforts to whitewash black history, high schoolers in the state's public school system will now be taught that race massacres, like the racial terror in Ocoee in 1920, the largest incidents of voting day violence in American history, that those massacres included acts of violence perpetrated against and by African Americans. In reality, it was a white mob that killed 60 people in Ocoee after a black man tried to vote. But those guidelines are part of a new set of standards that Florida's Board of Education approved yesterday, downplaying America's history of anti-black violence. And as part of their campaign to make America Florida, state officials want to export those standards nationally. Joining me now is Jelani Cobb, dean of the journalism school at Columbia University and, of course, a staff writer for The New Yorker. Dean, um, I, I feel like I'm always bringing you on for the, the news around education gets more and more depressing, especially in the state of Florida. This t- seems for, for a long time, the effort has been minimize um, white aggression, minimize sure. white crime, minimize white murder and targeting of people of color throughout American history. Now, sort of the the, the other side of that coin is and upsell the notion that either black people enjoyed slavery mm-hmm. or that they were somehow complicit in this racially motivated violence. Sure. And, and, and so this is outrageous, but it's not shocking. You know, when you know the history of this, this is just a repetition. So even as these events were being uh, perpetrated, there were attempts to, one, eliminate the record. When you go to Tulsa and also when you go to Ocoee, many of the official documents that you would use to actually record that history have been destroyed. Mm. And so there's the attempt to whitewash it in the immediate aftermath and then the reversal of the narrative to make it seem that the people who were victimizers were actually victims and people who were victims were actually victimizers. The most pernicious part of this, however, is not the dishonesty, not the outright lying on people and who lost their lives, but it's the purpose of it. Yeah. They do this in order to uphold an unjust and unfair state of affairs in the nation and in the state. So they're telling the story. The question is, they're telling the story for what ultimate purpose? And I think that's where it gets to be really pernicious. Well, it's it's pernicious, but it's I mean, at least from my vantage point, transparently pernicious. It is so egregious that the vice president of the United States is going to Florida tomorrow to talk about what's happening Mm -hmm. in, in the Florida public school system. I wonder if you think they get away with this. I mean, they potentially can. You know, given what we've seen, you know, the the anti-woke act and the don't say gay act yeah. and, you know, what is what, you know, the, the kind of rearguard march that's happened in education in Florida, the way that they're antagonizing people at the university level, uh, the way that they are you know, creating a chilling effect, you know, across education on all of these tiers. I'm not sure that they won't be able to get away with this. I will say one thing that I think is also particularly disturbing is the fact that Ron DeSantis was a history major. Yeah that he graduated from Yale with a degree in history. Now, I know the faculty at Yale. I know that department. I've lectured at Yale. 
Nobody, I can guarantee you, nobody taught Ron DeSantis the foolishness that we're seeing being passed off as history in Florida right now. Well, I think I, I, would, I, I believe you when you say that. I think what's um, equally disturbing about all of this is that other states are looking to Florida as a guiding light in terms of how to revise American history, how to shift the country into reverse, as you say. And what could emerge is literally just the fragmentation of American education, right, At, where you have blue states that are not under the same sort of <laughs> duress as, sure. as red states where history is taught in a fulsome way. And then red states where we have revised our history, where there's mm -hmm. a different understanding that children are brought up with as it comes to America's bloody and violent history on race. And what are the implications for a country already so fractured to poison the well in the, in the education system? We're talking about children in, in elementary and middle and high school to be brought up with this. Sure, so the, the issue is the protection of hard-won rights. Yeah. The fact that people were excluded from the social compact, excluded from the civic compact, the fact that people had to lose their lives in order to attain rights that were granted in other communities at birth. And so that is the fundamental narrative, and that's a crucial narrative in terms of understanding how this nation came to be what it is. Now, if you eliminate that narrative, what you do is make it possible to marginalize those people again, to strip away their rights again, and not only to be able to do that, but for the public to not even understand the travesty as it is happening. Right. Well, when you say, I mean, basically, it, they've tried to censor the phrase structural racism, and now they're actually trying to tear down the sort of structures itself, sure. right? It's not just the language. It's actually the history itself, trying to revise it in a way where structural racism, not only can you not say it, it never actually existed. I mean, the, 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 I think the fundamental issue is that other, we understand that to be cancerous for the United States of America. Other states, so enamored of this idea that CRT has poisoned sure. the well, are going to replicate. I mean, do you think it's a foregone conclusion that this gets replicated in red states where governors have looked kindly upon what Governor DeSantis is doing? I mean, people will try. I mean, that's absolutely the same thing that we saw with CRT. Uh, and so, you know, what you do is strip away the, the utility of history in the first place. Uh, and you know, as I say time and time again, teams watch their tape the game tape to see what they got wrong, right. not what they got right. You're so right. And that's the whole purpose of, of studying history in the first place. Um, if you negate the study of history, then you devastate the world of politics and policymaking. I'll say that because so much of what we're trying to do is correct the wrongs of the past through policy, through programs. We see why it all dovetails into a political agenda. Uh, Dean Jelani Cobb, it is always so enlightening and such a pleasure, even when it's about distressing topics, to see you and speak with you. Thanks for Thank your you. time and wisdom tonight. We have one more story this evening. While facing potential criminal indictment for sending a mob to the U.S. Capitol, Donald Trump today appeared to issue a new threat. That's coming up. Stay with us. What I'm about to show you is from 2020, but this week it reemerged without context. You around with us. If you do something bad to us, we are going to do things to you that have never been done before. If you F with us, we're going to do things to you that have never been done before. Now, the audio is from an interview Donald Trump did with the late conservative radio host Rush Limbaugh. The two men were discussing Iran. But today, it was reposted on Truth Social by Donald Trump. 
Joining me now to discuss is Faz Shakir, former campaign manager and senior advisor to Bernie Sanders, as well as the founder of A More Perfect Union. Faz, it's great to see you, as always. Good to see you, Alex. So you ran a presidential campaign before, uh, Bernie Sanders. I, I, I was really taken aback by the just very specific intent of this post repost from Trump, which is to strike fear in the hearts of people who would potentially be detractors, investigators, or opponents, right? If you're a 2024 presidential candidate in this race, what do you do with an ad like that? What, like, and you, you, like, it's incumbent upon you to respond to it. Well, I don't know if it is. I'm, I'm going to argue that um, Trump has largely buried himself with a lot of independent and moderate and, and, and progressive people all across America. And he continues to dig holes. He's rallying in the course of his primary a bunch of intense people who like his alphaness. He swings at everybody. He pisses people off. And they, they, get, they get excited about that. Mm-hmm. If you're Biden, you're letting him mark his territory. Go for it. That's your 30, 40 percent. Great. It ain't a majority in this country. Mm. And so you say, I have a different ethical code. I'm not, I don't get dragged down into nonsense and garbage like this. But you, it, with that, I mean, what Trump knows is that there's a lot of people who are angry and upset in America, and he's trying to capitalize on that. If you're angry and upset, know that I'm angry and upset. Yeah. And I do think there's a message for Biden to make sure that while he's governing appropriately, there are moments of anger and upset, too. He's trying to change this government to work for you. Yeah. Can't forget that part as well. I want. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the word the fighter is always bandied right. about. Right. Like right. Biden has to show he's a fighter. And I, we were talking to the secretary of uh, transportation, Pete Buttigieg, about the ways in which certain Republicans are taking credit for infrastructure projects that were in, largely passed by Democrats that they themselves voted against. Right. And it's kind of laughable and right. desperate on a certain level. But it is one of the arenas where you sort of wish the White House would be more aggressive and, and mark its territory. Like, this is what we're doing for America. And this is the way we're going to own it. I know you've been working on some of Can you talk to me a little bit about your strategy for highlighting in the fight what Democrats are doing. Joe Biden, one of his wonderful qualities is that he's a peacemaker. Yeah. You put him in any room, he dials the temperature down. And I think it works in many, many ways for him. But there are moments where a working class audience, and I think many of them are going to be swing electors, you know, swing voters in this cycle. They're not going to be gravitating to, that's a very nice rational plan to improve America, nice implementation funding you got there. They want to know, what are your value orientations? Do you give a damn about me? Do I see that in the way in which you articulate it? And I think when you get into these implementation fights, there should be a fight. There are going to be moments, whether it's on prescription drugs, whether it's broadband needs to be expanded, whether there's a company that's resisting childcare, a company that's resisting paying workers its fair share, you go after them. You, you call them to the carpet. You say, hey, I didn't just dole out federal money so that people could take it and run with it. No, I have a vision for America that means working class people are benefiting. I think there needs to be some animation of those. You see UPS workers across the country. You see well, yeah. Screen Actors Guild. You see Writers Guild. They're all telling you workers are upset. Yes. And many of them feel like this might be their last contract, right? Because you, the coming of automation, the consolidation in corporate America, you say, who the hell has power to stand up to these guys? You know who does? A government. Mm-hmm. And you have to say that I'm, that I'm the bulwark against large mega monopolies, large corporations who have incredible power over you. And they say, go on strike for two months. Who cares? Where else are you going to work? That's their message to a lot of people. Where else are you going to go? And so if you're 
the president of the United States, you say, I got your back. Yeah, well, and you bring up the fact that this is shaping up to be the summer of strikes. I think by the, the peak of the summer, 650,000 American workers may be on strike, whether that's the Writers Guild, SAG-AFTRA, Hollywood, potential UPS strike, could, which could cost the U.S. economy $7.1 billion, Faz. And that is that is the another reality of this White House, too, right? Like, he's trying to balance the economy, the economy, the economy, yeah. and the very real need of American workers and the reality of, of, of you know, the, the future in terms of American labor. It's not hard to say, though, Alex, that with my power as an administration, as a government, I'm standing up for middle class working people with everything I can do. Now, I have some opponents out there. They happen to be in corporate America. They want to screw you. They, they don't care about our agenda of fighting for working people. I'm trying to dole out federal monies to a lot of people to help. But then I got a UPS over here. I got some big three automakers. I got some big studios, uh, the Disney's of the world. They say, the profit should only accrue to the top and you can be a part-time worker with no benefits and $16 an hour and that's good enough for you. And if that's their attitude, we should be looking for a government that says, that's, that's BS. No, we don't tolerate that. And I am willing to allow people to go on strike to say, you deserve your fair share. And I think that there's going to be these moments. These are existential moments. Yeah, they are. What, what direction of this country do you want? And I do think that, you know, you take, take AI and you say, like, Alex, look at your own show. You come in every day, you talk to producers, right? Is there a world in which you could imagine that there's robots who come in and decide what the topics and segments are for you? Yeah. We should care not for the profit accrual. What are you optimizing for? Not profit accrual. You're optimizing for people's fulfillment, happiness, to have a good life. That's our vision. That is, we are at an existential moment. Faz, it's always great to see you. Thank, Thank you, you so much for coming up. Faz Shakir, campaign manager and senior advisor to Bernie Sanders. That is our show for this evening. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.